everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today, my guest is Christopher Willis. Now, Chris is best known for scoring the show Veep, scoring films like The Personal History of David Copperfield and The Death of Stalin, as well as a number of animated shorts, particularly Mickey Mouse related. So, he's really brought this exciting, refreshing orchestral style with him, I think maybe influenced a bit by his expertise and study of 18th century music. And now today we talk about his latest works. One is the film, the animated film, Lamia's Poem, and the other, and this is very brief near the end, is talking about his score for the last episode of the latest series of Black Mirror, Demon 79. And our conversation on that's really interesting because you hear Chris's work and you expect a bit of tradition there, and yet he talks about how much he likes horror, horror music, especially the music of Joseph Bashara, and how much he wants to do that in the future, at least try his hand with it. That's a little bit unexpected. Now, but it takes us, as you might expect at this point, a little while to get to all of those. We jump on a lot of other topics in between, and Chris even gives his thoughts on AI in music and film music in particular. Now, of course, you can find out more about Chris on his website, on social media. You can do the same for me. Season 4 is up and running now. It's the second interview, and I have, gosh, four more in the works already, so I can say it's going to be an exciting season. But until those come out, sit back and enjoy. Christopher, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? Oh, lovely to be here. I'm good, thank you. I'm a little tired all the time at the moment. Uh, I have a, a little boy who's just turned... Actually, he's about to turn two months. He's between eight weeks and oh, two wow. months right now. Uh, I have to say my wife, Elise, is is doing all of the heavy lifting at the moment in the middle of the night. So I'm not nearly as tired as I thought I would be. But yeah, <laughs> I'm just in the in the process of figuring out the job that we do in combination with a little baby. But it's um it's glorious. So it's all good. Oh, that's great. Well, congratulations. And if... We hear a, a baby crying in the background and you have to run out abruptly. <laughs> I'll know why. I've run away all the way to my studio, so we won't, yeah, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being naughty. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think, um, is your wife a singer as well? And, and the two of you actually have worked on some projects together. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. How has that been, working together? I, I know that sometimes working on a, a series, for instance, it's a lot of work, tight timelines. Hopefully that uh, doesn't ever introduce any sort of conflict. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we have a, a massive amount in common. And so it's sort of, the main thing we've done is write songs, I should say, uh, mostly for the various Mickey Mouse cartoons mm. um, that I've done. There are two iterations, the Mickey Mouse shorts and then the Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse. Uh, and she sort of came on gradually over the course of the shorts and then came on officially in the wonderful world, although by that time she'd been actually writing lyrics and we'd been writing songs together for a while. 
And we did the song in our Disney World and Disneyland ride as well. There's a ride based on Mickey Mouse, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. And we wrote that song together, too. Well, so in that sense, it's great. You know, we, we have a shared language and a shared sense of humor and sort of complement each other in terms of our, I mean, our musical interests have uh, heavily overlap, but, they, but, but not entirely. You know, she knows much more about musicals about Broadway uh, than I do. And I have this uh, questionable in terms of usefulness, but this, you know, this, I've, I've leaned very <laughs> classical. I've, I have a, used to be a musicologist. And so, so that's all, that's all very good. But no, as you say, it's, it's tricky. I feel like every song we've ever written has been a little bit of an experiment in how exactly you're supposed to do it, what's supposed to come first and how much to sort of push back or how much, uh, when to believe that what you're, what you've got so far is basically right you know, when to move forward and when to throw things away. I think I, I'm worse at it. I've, my problem is if I'm working entirely with myself, then I'm, I'm a very nice person in, in everyday life, I think. Um, I'm quite polite. But when I'm working with myself, my criticisms are just entirely turned on myself. I'm quite mean to myself, really. You know, I throw a lot of ideas away or I just put things to one side. So we have a lot of shared interest. And in that way, we bounce ideas off each other very, very easily. But as you say, it's, it's always tricky. It's very hard to know when to abandon an idea, how much to criticize an idea, how much to sort of nurture an idea and say, this is the idea, let's move forward with it. And I feel like I'm, I, I'm not as good at working closely with another person as, mm. as I would like to be. Because if I'm working entirely with myself, I'm being very, very critical and sort of taking an idea... And as soon as I have a bad feeling about it, I sort of put it to one side and try and come up with another one. And then I kind of look at the two of them and put them head to head. And I just and I, I don't want to. It's hard to be that sort of mean to another person. I'm not sure it's helpful or appropriate. But then so I don't, you know, am I just going to be really nice? So I, 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 <laughs> I, am, I haven't quite uh, figured that out. Um, I mean, I'm making it sound like I'm a, I'm a monster. We, we, I, I, it's it's it's. It's been it's been glorious, and I, we're hoping that we hopefully that there will be some more opportunities to write songs together again soon because we've we've had some great times, and there's have been some ones that have been very funny and you know, very that have definitely struck a chord. You know, we'll 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 meet families, we'll meet kids, and realize that they know the songs, they sing the songs. You go to Disney World and you you see the lyrics from our song on on T-shirts and stuff. So it's been a very gratifying, very kind of beautiful thing. So hopefully we uh, we'll be able to do more of it. That aspect has to be a little exciting as well, where I'm sure your son, and I'll put my, my ignorance of the developmental stages of children right up front, but you know, I, I assume at two months I don't think babies are necessarily listening or reacting to music, maybe they are, but that as he grows a little older, hopefully that'll sort of be something that he can experience and enjoy and be kind of something that you can give him almost unintentionally. It's definitely, yeah, we, I mean, we sort of joke about the fact that we really don't have no idea what he's going to be into, <laughs> but he's getting a lot of music right now. Each of us keeps playing the things that we like. I'll realize across the house that she's playing Hairspray to him, or she'll come in and I'm playing, uh, you know, bar cantatas. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. He's they're, they're, the early stages. They they don't do a lot, babies, actually. <laughs> it's almost like when they're born, it's almost like they have a sort of basic firmware you know and they haven't actually loaded up their operating system yet they root around and they suck and they look for milk and they cry <laughs> um <laughs> they don't really do anything else yet but uh yeah if he's um i don't know if any of it's going in but there's a lot of music happening 
go for things that have bouncy rhythms. We've got this playlist building up and up and up of all these things that we've been playing. Ah, oh, that's great. I mean, I I'm getting us totally off track, but I I had some of my in laws over from the UK earlier this year, and you know, my my niece at the right. time was about 20 months old, and it's funny the music, the songs that would just resonate and make them obsessed. Unfortunately, it happened to be the songs of Coco Melon, so I heard those <laughs> endless hours. But it, it they is were going such round a and round thing. And... Oh yes, yeah. oh yes. It's funny because you know the books when they when the baby's t- teeny tiny, the books talk about repeating things. But when you're not really getting much feedback, it seems weird and silly to to repeat things. <laughs> Although I'm sure once you get later and realize how much they want that, it really starts to click. You mentioned this a, a couple times, both directly, indirectly, going back to some of your musicology roots. And I think you had a particular focus in the 18th century music. And when we think of film music, a lot of the, you know, I'm using quotes, traditional or classic styling is rooted in like 19th century romantic music. Definitely, yeah. How has your prior studying and specialization sort of affected your approach or your thought process of film and TV music? Uh, cool. That's a very cool question. I think that the basic, you know, if you try and understand sort of tonality or phrasing and you compare the 18th century with the 16th, clearly the the parameters were shifting. You know, the whole idea of, of modes and the whole idea of how long a phrase should be, a whole sense of rhythm is clearly shifting. From the 18th to the 19th century, I feel like it's actually more of a slight twisting of the dials that results in a lot of different language. So actually, I think that the, the background I have in 18th century stuff is, is surprisingly useful. Hmm. Like, if you've got that sort of Mozartian style in your fingers... I think you can like twist the dials and get to, you know, Chopin or or even later. But what what basically what I'm leading to saying is I find it more useful than I thought I would. It may influence <laughs> the kinds of jobs I get. I mean, actually, a really good example is cartoon music of the sort of Tom and Jerry or Looney Tunes variety. When they borrow things, or you know, when they when they're in a style, they're often sometimes it's sort of like a Sousa march. Well, a Sousa march is very kind of you know periodic and very tonal. So again, it's kind of not too far from the 18th century. Uh, they use lots of Italian opera. They love like you know Rossini and and Rossini again is not that far away. So I find weirdly when I'm doing sort of cartoon music, the shapes that I have from that 18th century style are much more useful than I would have thought i think as an outsider i would have, before i'd gotten into the weeds i would have thought well the 18th century is all like harpsichords and frilly collars and men in high heels it's, it's not really related to to the vernacular as you said like it seems like the vernacular of tv music um is more romantic but actually i find it more useful than i than mm. i would have realized in talking about some of the music that that's used in cartoons especially that style of cartoons i think it's it's really easy and i I've said this before that I'm I'm guilty of it as well as seeing something that seems like it's directed more at a younger audience and would have therefore a less sophisticated music. But then, like you're saying, you know, you you watch those older cartoons and they are not only using you know borrowing from a lot of these very well known pieces, but developing it themselves. So because you work a lot in that space as well, does that 
sort of surprised you, the the level that you're able to get to? It does, yeah. It's really interesting. I think, I suppose, cartoons in that golden age were more for everyone than we now recognize or we now realize, you know, because they, they would play them before movies. And I don't think they developed that, like, the, in the States, especially. Actually, in, in the UK, too, they have that Saturday morning association, you know, where you kind of get up. I don't know if they still do it, but, you know, you get up on a Saturday morning and and TV would have classic, you know, Roadrunner on it or something. Whereas in the original context, it was uh, maybe more for everyone. And I think there were all these kind of ambitious ideas about this new medium. There's an essay knocking around by Chuck Jones where he's he's making ambitious claims for what cartoons might one day be able to achieve because they're so abstract. He's kind of comparing them to abstract painting and things like that. And so I suppose in, against that backdrop, then you have these these composers, as you say, throwing themselves into the task. I mean, yes, yeah, so Scott, Scott Bradley and Carl Stalling are the, my two sort of heroes in that era. But all the Disney people are great too. You know, anytime I get stuck into one of those scores, if I can actually get hold of the score, it's just always so intimidating and amazing. And there's really nothing that I could criticize about it. I've talked about Pinocchio before. I absolutely adore Pinocchio, the score to that. I was looking not that long ago at the Mickey Mouse March from the Mickey Mouse Club, the marching band. The backing is all marching band, and then it has this, the singing on top of it. And the arrangement is just brilliant. You know, the, the, the resources are used perfectly. You have that whole generation of people who are very comfortable doing big band arrangements and writing for marching band and doing vocal, very, very good vocal arrangements. I was looking at the vocal arrangements from Bambi once and it's all, it all just looks great. There's no cheating. It, it doesn't look hurried. It's amazing. So it's always, it's always very nourishing getting into that stuff. Do you think that that aspect is something that is going away or is at risk of being lost a little bit? Well, I suppose... For some reason, I have some. I mean, the obvious, if, if, based on everything I just said, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I, 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 it would be very easy to be, yeah, to be very um, pessimistic about it. I suppose we have to recognize that music now is so different. The field of music is mm-hmm. so different. I mean, the things that you have to know, you, there, are, there are things you have to know about now that hadn't been invented then. So we're sort of spread over a different and perhaps broader terrain. It is sad if you love all that old stuff. It's sad to think that, that we do we struggle to to achieve that same thing now. But yeah, it's also amazing. It was always amazing to me when I arrived in, in California 15, 20 years ago, the way everyone was such an expert in... Everyone could, could do so much on their own already, and that's that's only accelerated now. You know, the composers knew about microphones and they played lots of instruments and they knew how to fix their own computer and... Uh, and so there, there are things about this, the, the way music is, film music is now that shouldn't be overlooked. It's sort of charming in a way, actually, when you sometimes when you're watching a movie, you're literally hearing the person who wrote the music. You're hearing their fingerprints on it more tangibly than you used to. So I suppose in a way that's that's cool. You know, there's, there's some um, thinking about I love the music to Severance, the Teddy Shapiro score. Mm-hmm. And you could clearly hear him playing lots of these strange percussion instruments, sound design instruments. Um, I love Dom Lewis's music, and you can often hear that it's Dom himself singing, tracking himself up and creating these vocal effects. And that's that's very cool. It's very, very interesting. So I'm giving a sort of hedgy answer. But, I mean, <laughs> uh, the, the, the natural thing would be, yes, to say, oh, it's very, it is it is rather sad. I do sometimes marvel at, at how good everyone was at these old-fashioned things back then. It's funny you mentioned Dom Lewis, because I, I interviewed him about this time last year, and... It was oh, something cool. that I I didn't know at first, 
So it was um, about the film Bullet Train. He had scored that. And yes, yeah, love it. He, I can't remember the tracks at this point, but his voice is on some of that. And so it was interesting then hearing the score, watching the film, and then talking to him and being like, oh, I recognize that voice because I just heard it two days ago when I watched the film. It's not something that I think about, and I don't think many people do, but it is interesting because that's more than basically anyone besides the people appearing in the film. Right. The composer can literally put themselves in it. Right. And it's even true in my things in context where you might not realize it because I do do a lot of these slightly more old school sounding things. But, you know, the pianos and the organs and the accordions and stuff like that are, are generally me. Of course, I'm not getting a blank check to record every single thing. So, so often even when a score sounds very old school, there may be fake elements or there may be, you know, the percussion might not actually have been done in the room, even if it sounds kind of orchestral. Hmm. Um, it might it might be me playing my own suspended cymbal and and other nonsense like that. I, I, do you do what? What's your instrument? You can see over my shoulder. I have a classic guitar, and I have a I have an electric guitar somewhere as well. Candidly, at this point, they are so much more for show than <laughs> any skill I have. Well, you know, I I I played back in the day, and I I made some drone music as well, uh, but. Unfortunately, the, the tide of times caught up with me a little bit, and I, I, I keep telling myself, I keep promising I'll pick it back up, and I, I do, and then six months pass, and I go, oh, whoops. Right. The whole realm of, of guitar-like instruments is, is what really bothers me, because if I, if I could get, I think, to a certain level on one of them, I would immediately find it useful. And I would, I would use it more. I would actually do it every day in my own music. And then it would be easy enough to buy another one, you know, switch to ukulele. Or, um, what people have told me is that what I need to do is to um, get decent at the mandolin because I play the violin. Oh, um, interesting. Not very well, but I play the violin, again, enough, enough to play on my own things in some contexts. And so that keeps me picking it up. And the mandolin, of course, has the same tuning. So what, that's what I should do. I should, I'm thinking of getting myself a mandolin, see if I can get on that You need get to on find something, maybe a little Mediterranean to score, because then you can you know, fit right. into the music, and then it's a great excuse or a great impetus for you to spend the time to really learn it, at least to some sort of competent extent. I agree. I, you have to be sort of, in this industry, you have to be sort of forced into, into things <laughs> by circumstances. Yeah. And so I, I do want to go back. You had mentioned, I don't know, that I had read, you know, you coming to to California, like you said, 15, 20 years ago. And, and I don't know the timing exactly, but you, know, you had worked with some composers like Harry and Rupert Gregson Williams, Carter Burwell, Henry Jackman. It's an approach that, that some composers take. Some just put themselves out there. Again, just a different start. But working with composers like that, how did that affect your approach your understanding to and of film and tv music uh well that's right and it, yeah it was very very formative so i didn't i didn't go to film school and i didn't study film music so i didn't have any of those experiences of learning about the craft of it through school i had a decent this decent sort of musical musical skill you know i think i, I was a good composer but i was i was basically showing up and needing to be taught how to actually write film music. I was like a doctor needing to be trained how to become a vet or something like that. It's a big difference and actually is much bigger than I realized at the time. Uh, I was youthful and, and rash. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first person I worked for was Rupert Gregson-Williams, as you say. And so I really learned 
all of the fundamentals from Rupert. I'm still very grateful to him for that because I, otherwise I would have had nothing. So the, the, even just day to day, what are you supposed to do? What do you, how do you do, how do you do, how do the computers work? Rupert was, did he have a room at remote control then? He was still friendly with remote control and with Hans, Hans Zimmer. And there was a collection of composers that were working in a vaguely similar way. You know, mm. if you could, you could move from one of them to another. Like for instance, actually I was working for Rupert and then I worked for Harry. And their key commands were pretty similar. You know, their key commands in Cubase were all not the Cubase ones, but they were quite close to each other. That sort of is a suggest gives you a taste of of how all of those composers were sort of in this sort of collective. And so, yeah, just how, how the technical side of it, you know, bringing the film in and working out how the music is going to take up a certain amount of space. And I remember having conversations with Rupert about things that are unbelievably basic like I just couldn't seem to get my I knew a lot about music a little as we've talked about I knew a lot about classical music and it was very difficult for me to write something that didn't sort of develop and morph and change mm. and sort of actually almost I found it hard to write anything that didn't sort of crescendo <laughs> and so I really having to learn from him that there are times in film music where you have to you have to learn different skills i mean you have to you, you can't just sort of follow your nose the whole time if two people are having a conversation then the music has to find a way to stay under that conversation i was enormously impressed I, I learned lots of things from all of the people that you mentioned it was amazing actually to move from one to another and realize that in spite of the similarities i talked about that their that their style was so different their style of talking to a director was so different the way they thought and talked about things was so different Carter Burwell, I learned an enormous amount from. Actually, I suppose because he was very separate. I only worked mm -hmm. with him quite quite briefly, but I was just so impressed at his sort of how patient he was and how thoughtful and the notes that he gave me were, were so incredibly patient and well thought through. And he took every film he did very seriously. He thought very deeply about the film's themes, themes in a dramatic sense. So just in terms of the vocation, I kind of just picked up. He be, might be surprised if he heard me waxing lyrical about this because it was quite brief <laughs> that, that, that I helped him out. But I was very impressed with that and just with his whole sort of aura and his whole philosophy. Hmm. Interesting. And I obviously want to talk about Lamia's poem and your work on that. But simply because remote control and, and Hans Zimmer came up, I read an article earlier today about the director Gareth Edwards, and he may have been mentioning this half-jokingly, but that for the upcoming film The Creator, he had first tried to use AI to score the film in a Hans huh. Zimmer style before eventually bringing on Hans himself to score it instead. And so I'm, I'm just curious because it's, it's fresh of mind and it's, it's such a simmering topic in the moment. Whether that's anything that you've run into or whether you've come across it enough to have any thoughts on AI in music in film. Right, right. Well, I think the development of machine learning in the last few years has shown us that Clearly, none of us has any idea what it's going to be able to do really well and what it's going to never actually or, you know, be, be not be able to do until it can do everything. So it's very hard to make any predictions. Mm. I have a feeling in terms of music that, that it's it's struggling to do things that, are, you know, you, you, you see a few examples showing up online of it being sort of given like library music style prompts and coming up with something. And I think at the moment, those are very cherry picked. And if you actually get a demo from someone, you realize that 
most of the time it still doesn't actually understand that if something starts in doesn't it doesn't understand what four four is for instance mm. and so it'll just every bar will be a weird different length and it just uh, there's just some incredibly basic things you realize that that it hasn't managed to to glean and you know the chords that follow each other are utterly at random um but who knows who knows it could it could have a, a massive breakthrough someone actually i think it might have been elise pointed out the other day when i was we were talking about a situation where someone had done what the director asked and then it had crashed and burned um <laughs> and and she was saying well yeah, that sort of demonstrates the problem with with ai that the half of the film composer's job is to interpret what people say and to realize that they may not actually want what they think they want and i think that's a that's a good point and that sort of extends all the way into the texture of the music that we i think when you're writing the music you're doing something very humane and very psychoanalytical watching the movie and responding to it. So maybe it'll, AI might do some very flashy things, but the idea of it genuinely doing what we're doing anytime soon seems, seems as remote as it, you know, just being like a person in, a, in any real sense, um, which I think, I think it is not. Another interesting thing I've heard recently, I don't know how, it's, it's interesting, I don't know how much this would affect film music, but... I have a friend actually who works in machine learning, so I get lots of little dispatches mm, from him. And he tells me that, to take the text models as an example, you might have noticed that they, they generally don't give you, they, they can't do things that are enormously long. They can give you something that's several paragraphs long, but we haven't seen example, or, you know, cover letters, you know, writing letters for you. The trouble is that the compute required, once you're 100 words into a thing, if you're the model, you're analyzing everything that you've already written and then using that as the basis of what to write next. The further you get into it, the compute multiplies. So the more paragraphs of text, or almost every word of text, you're creating a situation that's more complicated. So with the current, so he tells me, with the current technology, it would not be remotely conceivable that an AI could actually write a film screenplay or a novel, because they are massively too long. The computer would need to be the size of the universe to get beyond about four pages. And so if you're talking about writing a symphony, I imagine the same problem would apply. It might, it might be able to come up with a nice sort of opening allegro, but it would have the same problem that it would need to go back and refer to the start of the piece for every new bar that it writes. And so at a certain point, it would just explode. Now, whether that actually applies to film music is an interesting question. Maybe the film music just needs to rep respond to the film and doesn't really need any themes or any structure or any kind of... <laughs> I mean, now you're, you're getting into more uh, abstract question of what film music requires or needs or, or means whatsoever. I mean, I have this very, this very like symphonic conception of film music, and I think generally I can't help but think that way, that generally I start kind of wanting the, the end of the film to, to feel like it's wrapping up in a way that is like I would hope that a symphony would, would do that. But um, uh, uh, does it need to do that? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, and, and you know, that, that is a nice segue because your work on Lamia's poem, obviously quite symphonic, thematic, flows exactly like that, where it does have a nice narrative feel. And I will say there are... I enjoy both the stranger, more experimental sounds in film music as well as things that are a bit more classical in, in various definitions of the word. So it's it's always nice to hear a score like this where 
right from the beginning you hear this just really gorgeous luscious melody that you know, then permeates throughout in, in various incarnations uh so for anyone that hasn't heard at least some of the the singles that you've released yet i know the score comes out in about a week and a half i i would recommend that because of that main theme is just wonderful oh thank you that's very very nice what the score was going to be wandered around quite a bit actually before mm. it before it took shape there had been an idea that it would be very big you know but there probably wouldn't be the budget so it would be very big in an in the box kind of way and then as 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 we explored more we realized that it didn't it didn't want to be this sort of a big in the sense of yeah i don't know a sort of conventional you know lots of lots of fake choir and fake orchestra and that went away and then we had this very very interesting conversation about the the syrian or the arabic elements i've said this on some other podcasts so if any listeners have heard me say this i apologize you can skip forward at the <laughs> 60 seconds but um the producer is syrian and there are various other people involved who were able to tell me that Middle Eastern audiences often find what Hollywood movies do when Hollywood movies are doing the Middle East and are as well-intentioned as possible. They can find it rather irritating because although Hollywood composers do their research and use instruments that are geographically appropriate, they're generally very ancient instruments. And so to Middle mm. Eastern audiences, they all read not so much as, oh, it's the Ud, it's my home country. It's more like, oh, it's the Ud, you're saying that, that we're a thousand years in the past. <laughs> so the, the film starts in New York and has all this EDM and then it switches to Aleppo and suddenly we're hearing the Ud and, and the Ney and stuff and, it's, and it seems to be saying, oh, here we are in the windswept desert of the pre, <laughs> you know, the dawn of civilization. So I wanted to be very intentional about uh, about what Middle Eastern elements to use. And so I did focus on the Persian Ney and worked with Hossein Omumi, who's this great virtuoso on the instrument, and sort of let him take the front seat in the scenes that he was going to play on and also just wanted to check that we were doing it for the right reason. So in the in the movie, one of the main characters is Rumi, and Rumi is actually in the past, in pre-Renaissance. And Rumi used the image of the flute a lot, reeds and flutes. And so it felt resonant and appropriate. But it, but I, I wanted to make it sort of intentional and just that one element and not just sort of keep throwing dumbbecks and every Middle Eastern instrument that I could think of at the score. But so, we, yeah, so we, we ended up with the sound that, that you describe. I, I'm glad that you're, you're feeling that it has a shape across the span of the movie. I, I do like to try and do that if I can. I was finding, as you probably noticed, I, probably, I was finding that I wasn't able to use the theme directly that much. But there are ways, if you don't modulate that much and you do certain things, that there are ways to sort of allude to it all the time so that you feel vaguely like you're in that terrain all the way through the film, even if you're not hearing it kind of front and center with a, with a big neon sign over it. And maybe you don't want to give out state secrets, which is fine. But <laughs> what are ways that you can allude to a theme without simply repeating it 25 times? Uh, oh, that's a brilliant question. Um, uh, one thing I like to think of is that if you look at a melody and you think about what repeats in a melody, you know, what if from the first phrase, what are we listening to? What are we listening out for? Why does it why does it make any sense to us at all? You'd be surprised the extent to which 
clearly when you listen and when everybody listens, pitch and time are actually separable from each other. Twinkle, twinkle, little star feels repetitive, but it feels repetitive because the rhythm is repetitive, not the, the pitches. The fact that that makes any sense to you at all tells you immediately that your brain is able to separate the rhythm from the pitch. And so that's a thing that we do a lot with a melody is to use the rhythm more, more than once, but not the pitch. And you can actually do the opposite as well. So in Lamia's poem, we sort of have this like... We have this note quite a lot, this B. And what I find that I can do later in the score is to sort of... I can arrive there again and again, and it feels vaguely familiar to you, even though it's not really anything. It's just a B. It's not like a tune. So thinking of pitch and time as being separate, and you can gob onto one without the other, that's one little hot tip that I have. The moment you mentioned it, I've, I've had Twinkle Twinkle Little Star repeating through my head and, and thinking <laughs> about the rhythm in particular. So if that persists throughout the afternoon, I'm going to send you a very <laughs> angry, nasty email. <laughs> but we've got a few minutes left. I do really quick want to talk about Demon 79, which is a Black Mirror oh, yeah. episode that you had scored. It's such an interesting piece of yours to listen to because here you are, you've been talking about how you have this, I don't want to say constant approach, but you often uh, you know, have a familiarity with like the symphonic palette. And then you hear Demon 79 and it is very different much more horror-oriented. That last cue in particular is scary stuff. And it seems <laughs> so different from everything else you're doing. So I, I just wanted to see, like, what drew you to that project? And was it difficult doing something seemingly so different from the rest of your filmography? Cool, yeah. Um, well, there are a couple of... A couple of things that helped to sort of, yeah, like connective tissue. One, one is that when I was approached about it, or when I, when I came on board, there were already certain things that Toby Haynes, the director, and Charlie Brooker were listening to and thinking about and talking about. And they were basically already talking about concert music from the sort of 70s, you know, the, the bleeding edge avant-garde, Penderecki and Ligeti mm. and... Well, they were listening to some Bartok as well, but of course that's earlier. And so in a way, it was it, it took on the, the shape of something which is a bit of a pattern for me, which is, which is going into something and doing a bunch of homework on this particular era. I had just finished doing it on Schmigadoon, the second season, when I went straight from that to Demon 79. So I'd been listening a lot to Sweeney Todd and Cabaret and Chicago and things like that and just trying to understand them and talking to the arrangers, the song arrangers on, on Schmigadoon about those things. And so, yeah, I was going straight from straight from that into looking very closely at Ligeti and Penderecki and, <laughs> uh, uh, and all of that. But as you say, the, the shaping is very different. The, sent the, the sentiment is very different. I like a lot of people, I think. I'm, I'm sort of, I like a lot of kinds of music and a lot of kinds of movies, and I don't necessarily get to do all the things that I like. And it's really nice when I suddenly can. So I love the horror music, that whole history. And I like recent ones. Uh, I love what Joseph Bashara does in the Conjuring movies. I saw him at a party once and <laughs> was great getting talking to him about what the hell, what on earth are you doing there? You? <laughs> and actually, Elise has, Elise has sung on some of his scores. 
So I love that whole that whole realm. I'd love to do one that was that was less in that historical box sometime and more just sort of insane uh, like he does. But the other thing is actually very often because of the cartoons that I've done, very often when I get asked to do something now, I have already done something not a million miles away very briefly in a cartoon, you know, because I've done like sort of death metal hair and I've done this little Bollywood <laughs> one and I did, did one sort of set in Venice and, you know, and actually there's a horror Mickey Mouse where <laughs> the music just leans right into, actually there are possibly two, but there's one called uh, Just the Four of Us where the music is, if you heard the music on your own, there's no, you would have absolutely no idea that it was a cartoon. In fact, the, I remember the instrumental contractor being really worried where we were recording about how this could possibly be appropriate for children because there's all the horror effects in it and it was absolutely horrible sounding. So yeah, so it's so <laughs> funny thing. I, I had I had done a bit of horror before. Actually, I, I did a, there's a, I'm realizing now I did do a, a short horror movie a few years ago, but, um, but yeah, the Mickey Mouse actually, very often that show prepares me for getting a more legit request to do a thing later in my career. It's rarely now the first time I've been asked to do a thing <laughs> because there's often there's often a Mickey Mouse. I love it. And like you said, that's you would just so you would not expect that whatsoever. And I, I love that <laughs> there's that sort of musical openness for something like Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's awesome. Isn't that unexpected? Um, also, I should say, th doing those cartoons trains you in making things work on a tight budget. Mm which again, I, I don't know if I'll ever lose that. So that Mickey Mouse, I remember trying to figure out how to do string effects and how to do the choir with, with two people tracked up and all, all these things. And then to a surprising extent, those tricks are all useful later because you never seem to have enough time and you never seem to have enough money. So those ways of being thrifty never, never get old. I'm glad you find ways around it. If any uh, you know, studio execs are listening, give more time and money, but I don't, I don't know if they necessarily are. But, but Chris, I'm so glad you could sit down and chat with me, and I should have led with this 45 minutes ago. I've been a huge fan of your music since seeing the death of Stalin, uh, you know, whenever that was, six years ago, five years ago now. So I just wish you did more music because it's always a joy whenever you have a new score coming out. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Really, uh, really fun. Awesome. And uh, yeah, yeah. To be continued, I hope. Yeah, let's hope so.